Hello and welcome. My name is Jo Frost here with my co-host Peter Liners. This is Being Human. So welcome back to the Being Human podcast where we wrestle with what it means to be human in this current cultural context. This podcast is all about how life works at the intersection between the cultural story and the good, true and beautiful story that we read in the Bible. And a reminder once again that you can find out more by checking out the website. This is part of a much larger project looking at some of the most challenging issues of what it means to be human in our culture. www.beinghumanproject.com dot co.uk well done yes first time i've ever got that right i think and you can sign up for a regular email which i've just found out about very exciting that's probably going to go out fortnightly and that allows you to connect more with what we are doing so please do sign up and as always, we really do want to thank you so much for listening, sharing, reviewing. Please do keep coming in to us with your comments, um, with your questions, with your thoughts, and continue to help us spread the word. So this week, this episode, I was literally making notes for the episode and I was thinking, I just don't know what to talk about. I am pandemic out, if that's a word. I'm done with lockdown. I am less and less interested in who is the president of the United States of America. <laughs> I can nearly summon the energy to talk about Brexit because I live on an island that is being deeply impacted by it. I can do vaccines mainly because Northern Ireland is just fractionally ahead still at this moment. In fact, my wife has got her vaccination, very sore arm. Not because she's over 80 before anybody asks, because she is actually a healthcare worker. <laughs> that is uh, great news. Uh, I like the competitive spirit coming out already. I mean, I was I was really touched, actually. I was in Boots last week, and I just overheard this really gorgeous conversation. There was a woman in scrubs chatting to the pharmacist, and... Um, and they were both just celebrating with each other that one had had, she'd had her jabs. The pharmacist was going to the hospital that evening to get his. And it was, it almost reminiscent of the sort of celebration that you get when you hear somebody's just given birth or is pregnant. It was like life. People were genuinely celebrating, even with strangers, the gift of life. And it was really beautiful. I think when it comes to the vaccine, there's some really legitimate questions um, and people are, are concerned about who to trust, what to listen to. We did a great webinar on the vaccine that was really popular because there are so many questions out there. But overall, everyone seems to really just want to share that this is a good thing. This vaccine is good news. We've been praying for God to come and help us through this really challenging time. And we've been gifted with a vaccine. So it's good. And today... We don't just get to talk about a piece of good news, which is the vaccine, but we get to talk about the good news, the gospel story. We get to talk about the king and his kingdom. We get to talk about Jesus. Absolutely. Yeah. So we are tracking the biblical story. We are working our way through the good, the true and the beautiful story that we read in the Bible. And right at the heart of that story, we find Jesus. Uh, we recently had the inauguration of Joe Biden, the moment when he actually becomes President Biden. Um, and Christ's entire life of obedience, his atoning death, his resurrection, his ascension, are the means by which he inaugurated the kingdom of God. Uh, and that's what we want to look at in this episode with the bonus that you can't actually say the word inaugurated. I really, really can't. But um, I think that means that we're even because you can't say mirror or power. You just say mirror and purr. So uh, I think we're, we're quits. Anyway, we may, 
we may not be able to grasp the full meaning of the story of the God story that we've been talking about until we get to Jesus, because we need to be able to see it as the climactic episode of this great, big, grand story of the Bible, the chronicle of God's work in history, that this story that we've been tracking over the last few episodes, that God created this good and wonderful world. He made each and every one of us in his image. He loves us. We matter to him, regardless of what anyone else thinks and what anyone else says. He has a purpose for our lives. Absolutely. But we drop the ball individually, collectively, however you want to look at that. I doubt many people are going to need convinced that we live in this deeply, deeply broken world. And each of us have played our part in that. And we've also experienced the consequences of that. But the reality is that God wants to have a real and a personal relationship with each and every one of us. And so right at the heart of the gospel, he sends Jesus to live and to die and to take the pain and brokenness of this world on himself as he hung on the cross. But the good news, the great news is that Jesus rose on the third day. He defeated death and sin and he ascended into heaven and sits at God's right hand and all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe get properly fixed and fit together in him. Because Jesus opens the door to the new creation and then holds that door open and invites us all to join him. It is so good. And it's and it's called the gospel, which comes from this old English word for good tale, good news, the best news that there is, that in Jesus, the kingdom of God has come, the rule and reign, the will of God is manifest around us. Yeah. And so today we are going to explore what does it mean to be merchants of holy hope? Uh, what does it mean for us to be a light um, uh, to those around us? And we're going to explore that through four themes. There are so many we could have picked within the gospel story and trying to merge that within our cultural context. And so we've decided to structure our conversation just a little bit differently today as we begin to unpack those. Now, People might be surprised to hear that there is actually a structure to our conversations, um, but there is. Um, normally, what we would probably try to do is find the cultural hook, the cultural story that we want to explore, and then looks about at the intersection of the biblical story, how those two interact, um, and, and what's compelling about the biblical story in comparison to the cultural stories that are around, and then try and bring out some practical learning and some discipleship. How then do we live? But in this episode, what we're going to do is we're going to pull out four broad themes and interact with the biblical narrative in each one rather than waiting at the end. Yes. So we've, we've tipped our hand. We've given away that there is actually a note and a structure to this. And the four themes we want to look at today are uh, abandonment, subversion, sacrifice and finally doubt. So the first theme or idea that we want to look at um, in this episode is that of abandonment. I mean, I still remember the shock uh, the ripple of disbelief that went across the globe, really, when Donald Trump won the presidency in 2016. But actually, in one respect, it shouldn't have been that surprising. It was the flyover states, the Rust Belt of the US, who heard in Trump a voice that recognised and spoke out what they felt. 
uh, many talked about the feeling of abandonment, that they um, didn't have any jobs anymore, that government had abandoned them, nobody cared about them, Hillary never visited them, they wanted a smaller government, they wanted to be able to provide for their families and friends, they wanted the right to protect themselves and to be free to carry their guns, to occupy their space as a citizens of this free US um, uh, space. And they felt that they had been abandoned by the liberal metropolitan elites over on the coasts, the politicians, the media, the the Hollywood moguls. There was real anger that they had been left behind. And Donald Trump was going to be their advocate. He was going to give voice to that anger. Yeah, we saw something similar here around Brexit. Um, there was a lot of support for Brexit in the working class communities. They didn't feel the easier travel and movement of people had helped them. In fact, it was the opposite. And so there was a feeling that those were the communities that were suffering and they felt nobody was listening. Again, they felt abandoned. Now, we don't want to get into the rights or wrongs of Brexit or US politics, but the point here is that there are large parts of communities and our society that feel increasingly disenfranchised, and it feels to many that politicians still aren't listening. Feelings of isolation, loneliness and abandonment were rife in our society even before prolonged lockdowns. I mean, there was a report by Barna um, in 2019 that in the UK said that only 24% of 18 to 35 year olds feel deeply cared for and only 21% uh, would say that positively that they felt that somebody believed in them. People feel abandoned, left behind and disenfranchised. Yeah, and in the last episode, uh, we looked at Daniel and his mates who were in exile. They had a feeling that they were abandoned by God. Um, There's a big debate then about whether exile ever really ended. Zerubbabel uh, was one of the first groups to return. And then sometime later in the book of Ezra, we read about the need for kind of the spiritual reformation following the rebuilding of the temple. And then a little bit later, Nehemiah returns and he starts to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And there's these phases going on, but ultimately then we enter a period of 400 years. It's called the intertestamental period, a gap where God appears to be silent. There's, there's nothing heard from him. Had he abandoned his people? And I think this is this is why the Gospels are so interesting in how they start. So Matthew and Luke open with genealogies, these long lists of names that tie their gospel, their story into the stories that have gone before. God has not abandoned his people. In fact, he's sending the long promised Messiah, his son, Emmanuel, God with us into the story. Then we have John retelling the Genesis story in the beginning was the word. And we have Mark opening up with the announcement that the kingdom of God is here, that people need to repent and believe this good news. Yeah, and these and these stories are then, in, and, and Jesus coming is in real contrast to the various Jewish groups who are operating at the time. There's kind of four broad responses to this feeling again of abandonment and of living under Roman rule. You've got the Sadducees who, who sort of cozied up to the establishment. They'd compromised with Rome and they were focused on their religious rituals and what they were allowed to do. And they liked the status quo. It kind of worked for them. And then you've got the Pharisees and they're, they're into the kind of radical personal holiness. Um, and it's all about the religious law and about them themselves as individuals being right with God. Then you've got the Essenes. 
and they were all about withdrawing. Let's get away from the temple system that's all corrupt and let's get away from the Roman Empire and all that it's doing. If we could just get off into the desert, we'd be fine on our, on our own. And finally, the zealots. And they came along and said, let's just overthrow the Roman Empire. Revolution is the only way. Uh, they didn't want to tolerate the pagan idols and practices in their land. They thought God was going to bring about the kingdom, but with their help and with the sword. And in the midst of this, Jesus then turns up announcing a radically different kingdom. As Eugene Peterson put it, he moved into the neighborhood. He lived amongst and continually went after the least and the lost. He reimagined the law. He upset both the Romans and the religious rulers. But fundamentally, the good news message from Jesus was that God has not abandoned his people. Rather, Jesus had come, humbled himself, taken on human flesh and become obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then our response to that is we are to be carriers of this holy hope that God has not abandoned us. Emmanuel isn't just a name, it's a title. He is the with us God. And Donald Trump and Boris Johnson and Kanye West and not even the Bake Off or the vaccine can give us the assurance of his presence being with us through the hard times as well as the good times. Only Jesus promises, surely I will never leave you or forsake you. So if the hope that Jesus brings and the hope that he encourages us to then carry into this world answers the heart cry of so many around abandonment, what then else does this gospel, does this hope communicate? So the second thing we want to look at is this theme around subversion. Yeah, and we see that. I think we can see the link here a little bit as we see all around us this anger at the status quo about the situation we find ourselves in, about the world in which we live. Um, there's a pervasive call to tear down, to rip out unjust structures, to break up the powerful and the influencers, to shake up Westminster or Washington, to drain the swamp. There's this call to deconstruct anything that's been built on these kind of wonky foundations. But the radical nature of Jesus actually comes slightly different. He says, look, um, he moves in and says he's going to be with us. He's not simply going to tear down, but he's going to subvert what's already there. And we see that in, in Matthew 5 and the Sermon on the Mount. This is the launch of the Jesus Manifesto, a, a deeply political challenge to his followers. And in it, he's not promoting a, a kind of form of religious nationalism. In fact, he's subverting the expectations of many of those four groups we just talked about. Hope comes not from tearing things down, but through subversion, through the coming of the topsy-turvy kingdom of God. Because today we see a real trend just to deconstruct everything. Uh, it started in the work of some of the French modernists who wanted to deconstruct language or meaning. Then we have the queer theory that wants to deconstruct and get rid of anything heteronormative um, that imposes a sense of uh, of security in our relationship structures. You've got cultural Marxism, which wants to deconstruct and be done with marriage and family. There's so many different voices that are tearing things down. And I would say in the midst of all that, you've got Donald Trump, who is the queen of queer. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Just just throw that in there. Do you, uh, do you maybe want to unpack that a little? Well, I just thought I'd get people's attention a little bit. I mean, yeah. <laughs> So some people see Trump as, as subverting the dominant discourse. He's the kind of hero figure who basically have, you know, bluntly two fingers to political correctness. 
But in many ways, Donald Trump was a, a kind of thorough postmodernist. He's deconstructing everything around him. He is an, an agent of chaos. He wanted to throw off sexual constraints and do as he pleased. He wanted to tear down existing power structures for his own benefit. He was all about alternative facts. Um, I mean, I said this before sometimes when I was speaking on these topics that trans activists and Trump supporters meet each other in one sense on the dark side of the moon. If truth doesn't matter, and if you can change language to mean what you want, you end up in a very, very dangerous place. And if you throw out any kind of objective measure, any kind of scientific evidence, then Trump can claim any amount of people attended his inauguration in the same way that someone can claim to be gender fluid. If queer theory is about deconstructing social norms, then in many senses, Donald Trump was the king, or should I say the queen of queer. All, all I can say is that I'm glad that you're saying this and not me. <laughs> well, there ended my, my rant or my uh, little excursion on that. Anyway, my point is that the gospel um, is seen as de deconstructing social norms. It is speaking up, though, in fact, for those who are marginalized. It's a very different thing that it's doing. Um, and so in doing so, it's building upon our existing story. It's reimagining a new way of being. What does it look like to be part of the kingdom of God? Because it, it is subverting. It's not deconstructing. And this is important because we are in another season where everything is being stripped back. Fundamental questions are being asked for us about what this society needs to look like, um, about what our communities look like, what church looks like, how do we worship, how do we gather, how do we disciple, how do we follow Jesus in this moment. Deconstruction is easy, but being kingdom carriers and merchants of hope is a much more challenging prospect. So we are looking at what it means to be merchants of holy hope. We are living in a season that is desperately in need of hope. It's really tough out there right now. People are really struggling. And as a culture, we are being asked to sacrifice in this moment. Lockdown is really about people sacrificing their individual freedoms for the sake of others, particularly for the old and for the vulnerable. Churches are being allowed to be open in many spaces, but many are choosing not to gather. There may be different views on this, and for some, they're coming down on slightly different parts of the argument, but for many, they're sacrificing the right for them to gather in worship and be in the same physical space for the sake of those in their community who would be more at risk. And there are real tensions around this because sacrifice is hard. We don't live in a particularly sacrificial society. As we discussed previously, we like our individual freedoms and the opportunity to do what we think is in our own best interest. And we've tracked, haven't we, from, from the garden, from when Adam and Eve chose their own autonomy over their relationship with God, that humans have been choosing themselves over others throughout history. But the God story shows a narrative of generosity, of offering life and freedom in relationship to the last and to the lost. Jesus shows that to be human is to love and to give oneself for the sake of others. 
He talks about the love of of enemies rather than to seek their destruction. He speaks of unconditional forgiveness instead of retaliation. He shows a readiness to suffer instead of using force. He offers blessing for peacemakers rather than hymns of heat and revenge. The pinnacle of the God story is that sacrifice is God's chosen mechanism for hope. Yeah, Jesus' ministry on earth shattered expectations. It reorientated norms and it shifted the understanding of who God is. So Jesus has this great exchange in his trial with Pilate, where Pilate turns to him and says, so you're the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you're the one that's calling me a king. I came into the world to call those who believe in truth and anyone who knows the truth will follow me. Pilate says, what is truth? Uh, Tom Wright would call Pilate the first postmodernist, which I love. Yeah, and there's been a lot of talk about living in this post-truth world. Post-truth was named one of the words of the year a few years ago by the Oxford Dictionary. And it was seen as the logical consequence, really, of postmodernism. This idea that there apparently is no such thing as absolute truth. And everyone just has their own story, their own version of the truth. But it's not a new idea. That's what we're being reminded. Jesus knew what it was to live in a chaotic world with hypocritical religious leaders and with hostile political leaders. And at this moment of his sacrifice, he has this just bizarre but wonderful truth encounter. Which then leads us into our final issue that we flagged at the start, which is doubt. Yes. At the time when truth was up for grabs, doubt and despair are on the rise. I grew up with one of those kind of kids Bibles that had about 20 key biblical images in it. And there were a few that were definitely, you just didn't want to be. There was Goliath, there was Judas, and there was Doubting Thomas. Given that his first name, nobody wanted to be him. There's a guy who created the Swedish Jesus, Carl Henrik Bloch. And he was actually Danish, as it turns out. But anyway, his paintings were often used in kids Bibles. His most famous image was Thomas on his knees, not even looking at Jesus. Jesus himself is looking pretty peeved, actually. His robe slightly undone, as if he's maybe going to see a doctor. And three disciples stand behind, looking at Jesus in the face, not at his scars. And the message is just really clear. Don't doubt. I can barely be bothered with this guy in front of me on his knees, doubting Thomas. I mean, it's fair to say that the church isn't great with doubt. Um, And actually, for many of us, doubt is something that is either uncomfortable or alien to us. But we live in a society, into a secular age that is defined by an instinctive doubt. Absolutely. Um, This is different from the kind of scepticism that you'd often have seen in the the British university system, uh, which was addicted to the power of the question. It gave rise to a particular form of apologetics. Um, that was designed to answer the questions of the skeptic coming along. And there are folks like the Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics or Solas who do an amazing job addressing some of those issues that are raised by the skeptics. But there's a new form of doubt, that there is no possibility of any answers. There's this deep anxiety about whether in the midst of all the profound questions people have, there might not actually be any answers for us. And if answers are offered, they are done in the interest of the power held by the person offering those perspectives. 
I mean, even in the church, many people believe that the church isn't even a safe space to ask questions and sadly not a place where they can be given any trustworthy answers. Yeah, and so box painting, I mean, it's, it's really kind of gray and, and kind of dark and just uninviting is all too often an accurate image of the church, but not of Jesus the great Italian painter Caravaggio uh, portrays a very different picture of the same scene. As, I mean, it's worth looking it up sometime. The colors are warm and inviting. The focus is on Thomas's right hand and it's being just firmly guided by Jesus's right hand and right into the center of his wound. And the touch from Jesus is soft and welcoming. There's no hint of criticism in it. And there's two other disciples and they're kind of looking on and they're just absolutely fascinated by Thomas and this moment. Because Thomas is often portrayed as this great skeptic, the, the failure amongst the disciples, that he refused to believe in anything unless he could touch it and feel it and measure it. But actually, uh, Carvaggio portrays Thomas as, as driven by grief he wants to see that there is real life that can come out of real death. What does resurrection look and feel like? And in many, many ways, he gets it. And for many of us trying to live this Christian life from high to high, conference to conference, Sunday to Sunday, the, the promise of Easter Sunday, but never recognizing or permitting the pain of Good Friday or the loneliness of Holy Saturday, Lockdown has severely challenged that mountaintop to mountaintop uh, aspiration. Totally. And, and the reality is that scars are this really intimate thing. They, they feel really funny to touch. And there's a moment of real intimacy. I want you to touch me in, in my place of vulnerability. I want you to know that I have heard your cries and borne your death. Jesus is really saying when he touches the scars, he feels a warm, live body. There's life beyond death. That's when Thomas falls down and says, my Lord and my God. Thomas was right to bring all his questions to Jesus and Jesus answered them with himself. I just love the end of Matthew's gospel. In Matthew 28, we see the ragtag, motley crew of the disciples gather on the mountaintop and Jesus appears amongst them. And, and some fall at his feet and worship the resurrected God, the presence of life himself in front of them. And yet, Matthew writes, some doubted. And yet to them all, Jesus said, go. He encouraged them to be merchants of holy hope, to go and make disciples, to carry the kingdom and know that I am with you. I love the idea that even in their doubts, Jesus sent them on, even recognizing the insecurities they may have carried about themselves, their ability to communicate what they knew to be true, or even if they doubted what was right in front of their eyes, Jesus acknowledged where they were at but said, you still carry the kingdom because I am the with you, God. Absolutely. And we've been, we have moved beyond that kind of modernist way of engaging that. Here's the evidence. There's skeptics and I can persuade you of all these things, the kind of lawyers and scientists all lined up, ready to give you every last piece of evidence. Like That's not what people are looking for in this moment. They're living with the despair and the doubt. Jamie Smith puts it this way. We don't believe instead of doubting, we believe while doubting, we're all Thomas now.
into land, what it means to be merchants of holy hope. We've looked at these ideas of abandonment, the kind of subversion deconstruction piece, the sacrifice right at the heart of the story, and, and then the space for doubt. So, so what does that mean practically? How, again, do we land this? What, what, what are you taking away from this then on a more practical level, Joe? So I think for me, I, I, I have to come back to the Emmanuel that heart cry around isolation, of loneliness, of abandonment, the bubbling up of anger that people feel. Actually, how do I reorientate myself to recognize that God has never abandoned us? Uh, how do I seek and practice his presence? How do I become aware? And we've talked about this before. We've talked about Lectio 365, which asks us just daily to recenter our scattered senses. I just love that sentence, whether it's the examine, just noticing what is going on around or just praying Holy Spirit, come in this moment. How do I carry God wherever I go? How do I take the hope I have in the relationship that I have in him into the conversations, into my moments, into just living in my house and not being able to leave it? How do I practice his presence in this moment? And I guess there's an outward aspect to that too. So we then need to be present to others. Tough as that is during this lockdown, don't we? we need to be texting people, phoning people, communicating with them because people do feel abandoned. They feel lonely. They feel isolated in ways that we struggle to comprehend. Actually, we, we never prepared for this moment. So there's a real practical outworking of what it looks like within whatever the rules are in your area. Can you go for a walk? Can you meet with somebody in any way? Because they're struggling. We Everybody we know is struggling. We've had these conversations. <laughs> so I think that's the first one. Then we're looking at the kind of subversion deconstruction piece. And I think yeah. that for me, the, the ease there is to go to deconstruction. De I mean, this is what everything about coronavirus is going. We've, we've torn down the structures. And as we come out of it, we'll continue to deconstruct. We'll tear apart. We'll analyze. We'll overanalyze. It feels like that's all we can do. I sit and watch Twitter numbers for all sorts of things. And, and you're like, ah. And, and so... To stand against that and to look at what subversion looks like to what it looks like to reconstruct, to do formation in this moment, to be faithful. And discipleship is going to be tough going forward. We're going to have to reimagine what that looks like. And so part of that is the reaching out, the connecting with friends, the helping others on the journey in this moment. Yeah, and, and even just echoing back to Daniel, where he was charged to um, to follow the words of of Jeremiah, where he was told to seek the prosperity and the welfare of the city. We aren't just to rip apart, but we are to rebuild, to invest, to nurture and to strengthen our communities, to subvert in just structures, but replace them with the hope that we have in the gospel and in the good news of Jesus. Okay, so that's abandonment and the subversion point. Right at the core of the story, then, is the sacrifice that leads to grace and mercy and forgiveness and so many other themes. And we hinted at what that looks like. We have to submit some of our individual freedoms at this moment. And, and there's a real, uh, I think, sense of community that comes out of that. Some of what we do in living in community is, is going to be sacrificial moving forward. Um, how else does that land for you, that sacrifice point in this season? I think for me, it's all about the cost a lot of the time we talk about um, what we have in our margins that we can give away. I have capacity, I have extra, I have surplus. When we talk about generosity, it's often at the edges of what we have rather than what is core. 
And I think that speaks for me about what kind of God we understand we have. Is our God a God of limitation and of sparseness? And if I give away too much, I will be without. Or is our God a God of abundance and a God of lavish? In which case, if I give, I will always be given back a hundredfold. Sacrifice generates love. It generates blessing. It generates generosity. And as we give ourselves in a costly form, we're actually spending ourselves to bring about the hope, to recognize God's faithfulness, to rely on him and to see his kingdom come. It's a completely topsy-turvy understanding of how to live and how to give, but it's one our communities and our society desperately needs. Yeah, and the cost part is interesting because it hasn't been costly to be a Christian in the UK to date. And it's the cost now is not the cost we expected. Some were saying, oh, we might be persecuted. It might be tougher to be a Christian. That's not the reality. It's that it's costly in a strange way to continue to try and gather at a Zoom church. It's costly in a strange way to do uh, faith and faith community in this moment. It's much tougher to disciple our own families, to to cultivate our own faith often, not in a selfish individual way, but because of the reality of the ways that we can gather. The challenge and the cost is very different. Now, it's nothing compared to our brothers and sisters who are persecuted in different ways. But it has, it has stripped away much of the scaffolding and forced us to really examine what our relationship is like with Jesus, going back to the presence point, And how do we disciple family and friends in a much more localized way without some of the support structures that we relied on that made it actually pretty easy, a kind of consumer-driven faith. We turned up on a Sunday, we got some products given to us. Great. And that's not there. And it's a different kind of costliness. Yeah, it's really interesting. And then finally, we've been talking about this idea of doubt, of of what it means to question, what it means to not have trust or objective answers. And I think, I mean, the British culture is a nightmare for this anyway. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. Um, uh, You just picture some of the Monty Python scenes of it's just a flesh wound um, and this sort of rigid assertion that everything's going to be just fine. And actually, right now, we are in a world that is not fine, that forces us to ask questions about our faith, about who God is and what we understand his rule and reign and his will to look like. But we can be honest with our doubts. The Bible is full of people bringing their anger, their grief, their questions, their outrage to God. And God engaging in conversation with them of reassuring, of rebuking, of challenging, of affirming. God can handle our doubts. And in our doubts, we can remember and experience his faithfulness. So let's be honest when we have questions and bring them to each other. And if we haven't got questions, we carry those that do because it will all be our turn at some point. And that community of the joyous worshipper and the, and the struggling doubter to them all, Jesus said, go, I will be with you. So yeah, good. We, we talked, yeah, it's, it's so good. And we, we've talked before, we were looking at some personality profiling stuff we were doing for this very project between certainty and doubt. And we recognize that different people approach this differently. I'm not a natural doubter. I, I like certainty. Um, it's one of the reasons we enjoy working in this project, to give people an insight into, into our world. Um, and so for me, the Lewis stuff appeals to me, the kind of 
um, more traditional apologetics in a way. Did Jesus exist? Was he a son of God or a madman? That stuff, I warm to that. But we need to create space for doubt. Actually, one of the things that provoked me most in this was working with the LGBTQ community because Q has really moved from queer to questioning. And one of the things I think they did really well and I want to learn from is they created a space to question and engage. And I feel the church said, no, no, sort yourself out and then come and see us. And we want to be the place that's not come with your questions. Jesus can absolutely cope with this. I might not be able to, but Jesus can. That's the key thing I want to say in this moment. So to create a lot more space for that um, than we probably have historically done. And it's one of the things that guides us in this project. We want to open the space for that in a different way. So we've come to the end. We've looked at abandonment. We've looked at subversion. We've looked at sacrifice at the core and the space for questions in this moment. Um, thank you for being with us on this journey. Um, this was a different episode in a different style. If you found something useful or helpful, do let us know on social media at Peter Linus or at Joe Frosty. Do sign up for the email. Do keep following the project on beinghumanproject.co.uk. Got it right twice in one episode. Um, and uh, rate, review, share if you can. God bless. Be blessed.